Chapter Twelve of the Girls of Gardenville by Carol Watson Rankin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve, The Helpfulness of Virginia. One. To each human being there belongs a particular adjective. The one that involuntarily leaped to one's lips at thought of Virginia Donaldson was helpful. Many girls of just seventeen consider nothing but their own pleasure, but Virginia, apparently, was most thoughtful of others. Her own family, however, knew that it was only apparently. Old for her years and quick at her lessons, she had finished high school and was longing ardently for college. But Ralph, the oldest young Donaldson, had gone instead, and his sister was somewhat impatiently awaiting her turn. Meanwhile, freed from the immediate necessity of studying, Virginia, of course, had to have something to occupy her time, for she was an extremely energetic young person, filled with youthful enthusiasm, and fond of work for its own sake. Of course, between the sweet sixteen and the singular six, she was kept moderately busy, but there were moments when even these active organizations failed to supply her with something to do. Therefore, when she found Mrs. Breen, the clergyman's wife, struggling with the problem of getting overgrown young Edward from long into short clothes, she promptly offered to relieve the overburdened mother of the task. "'It tires me so,' Mrs. Breen had said, "'to run the sewing machine. Edward is simply bulging at every point from all his garments, and he's so cross with his legs all tangled up in his long skirts that he doesn't give me any time to sew.' "'Are they cut out?' asked Virginia, pouncing on a basket of white cambric pieces. "'All basted, too. Then give them all to me. Tell me what to do, and I'll run home and stitch them on Mother's machine. I can really stitch quite beautifully.' Next, Virginia's other neighbor, stout, unfashionable Mrs. Doty, was planning to do away with the social indebtedness of a lifetime by giving a huge reception to which all Gardenville was invited. Clad in an astonishing wrapper, she was spreading a rug on her big side porch when Virginia spied her. "'Isn't there something I can do to help you?' cried impulsive Virginia, who, on her own side of the fence, was gathering great bunches of late-June roses. "'Don't you want some flowers?' "'For mercy's sake, no!' responded Mrs. Doty irritably. "'Every last person that raises flowers has sent me roses till there's baskets of them all over my kitchen. I fall over them every time I start for the pantry.' Folks might know I haven't time to fool with flowers, nor half enough vases to put them in. Then wouldn't you, said Virginia, generously overlooking the slight to her first offer, like to have me arrange them for you? I'll bring over plenty of vases to hold them. I'd just love to do it. Well, I'd just love to have you. I suppose they'll have to be taken care of somehow. Do anything you like with them, but for goodness sake, keep them from under my feet." Through Virginia's industry, Mrs. Doty's house, with its massive plush-covered chairs, its heavily modeled marble mantles, and its gorgeous carpets, was speedily transformed into a bower of roses. Mrs. Doty was frankly delighted. "'Well, well!' she exclaimed, bringing from the kitchen an aroma of salad dressing and celery. "'If this isn't pretty, I wouldn't have known the place. Why, I couldn't have fixed it up like this in a thousand years.' "'Glad you like it.' said gratified Virginia, gathering up the empty baskets. This was only the beginning of Virginia's usefulness. Wherever there was a gap of any kind, there was Virginia ready to fill it. She was as versatile as she was willing. 
Whatever she lacked in skill, she atoned for in energy, and she made surprisingly few mistakes. She stayed with infants while their mothers went to afternoon parties. She catalogued Mrs. Price's extensive library. She even spent hours, assisted by other members of the Sweet Sixteen, in washing dishes at church sociables. Her always cheerfully given services were in great demand. She gradually gained a reputation for being a marvelously helpful and obliging young person, and soon all her days were full. All this, of course, was perfectly delightful. Virginia and the persons she helped felt equally pleased. The members of the Sweet Sixteen unselfishly elevated their most helpful member to an imaginary pedestal, and, in her heart, each girl wished that she were more like lovely, self-sacrificing Virginia. But there was another side to the story, the Donaldson side. While Virginia was in school, Mrs. Donaldson had made few demands on her studious daughter's time. But with her school days over, Virginia seemed, to Mrs. Donaldson's astonishment, very much busier than she had been before, not, indeed, with her own concerns, but with those of everyone else. The industrious girl did not have time to even sew on her own buttons. The Donaldsons were not poor. They kept one servant, sometimes two, but these were not always competent. Then the family was large, and like every other large family, prone to illnesses and accidents. There were three little children, always breaking out with measles or needing new clothes, besides two half-grown boys and an invalid grandmother to be looked after, and all Virginia's buttons besides, and the entire burden fell on Mrs. Donaldson's shoulders. They were strong, well-carried shoulders, accustomed to holding themselves erect under weighty loads. But there were times when Mrs. Donaldson, able as she was, found the burden pretty heavy. There was the day, for instance, when fourteen-year-old Philip, with an ulcerated tooth, was crosser than the proverbial bear, and when Mr. Donaldson, in bed with Quincy, was hardly more amiable. Mrs. Donaldson, with a steaming poultice in one hand and a bag of crushed ice in the other, met Virginia, dressed for the street, on the landing of the front stairs. "'Oh, Virginia!' she exclaimed. "'Must you go out so early? I was just going to ask you to fix Grandma's breakfast tray, for Hannah has one of her dreadful sick headaches, and this is the fourteenth poultice I've made since supper-time last night.' "'Oh, I'm sorry,' said Virginia, stooping gracefully to kiss the crimson spot on tired Mrs. Donaldson's cheek. "'But I promised Helen Roxbury I'd take her music classes today, just the smallest pupils, you know, so she could go to her brother's wedding without losing her pay for the lessons. I'm ten minutes late now. I'm awfully sorry, but—' "'Oh, well, I'll manage somehow,' said Mrs. Donaldson. "'Helen probably needs the money, and it's good of you to help her.' Virginia, shining with virtue, thought so, too. Another time, Virginia's father, whose eyes were defective, asked her to hunt up something for him in the encyclopedia. Virginia, having promised to help old Mrs. Merriweather hull strawberries for her annual jam, had transferred the task to little Grace, who hunted up the wrong William Smith to the subsequent embarrassment of Mr. Donaldson. But neither of these incidents, nor many others like them, troubled happy Virginia, always sweet-tempered and apparently filled with mild contrition at having no time to devote to her own family, she was nevertheless deaf to all Donaldson entreaties, putting them aside lightly, gently, but always effectually. She was by this time thoroughly convinced of her usefulness to the community. She wondered sometimes how her townspeople had managed to exist while waiting for her to finish school. So did the Sweet Sixteen. 
You always seem to know just what to do for everybody, said Catherine, when she found Virginia matching yarn for old Grandma Baker. I think you're just lovely. Yes, agreed Alma Boyce, admiringly, although Alma was not really an easy young person to please. Wherever there is need of a helping hand, there are Virginia's too, helping with all their might. I think you're perfectly wonderful, Virginia. I suppose I am rather useful, said Virginia complacently, but I must confess I like it. 2. If anything, warm weather increased rather than diminished Virginia's helpfulness, and her complacence grew with it, but only up to a certain point. Then something happened. It was Max Blaisdell, who, in a roundabout and decidedly unconventional fashion, brought Virginia to a different way of thinking. Although Max himself never suspected that the Donaldsons had any reason to be grateful to him, quite the contrary. It happened in this way. Mrs. Turner, an ambitious lady of small means, was giving an evening party. Virginia was too young to be invited, but Mrs. Turner had eagerly accepted the girl's offer to decorate the great empty dining room. It was autumn. All the gardens in Gardenville were full of pink and white asters, and young Mrs. Blaisdell, who lived next door to Mrs. Turner, and who was indebted to Virginia for many favors, had offered the girl the use of her automobile for the forenoon. Mrs. Blaisdell had intended to run it, but when the day came she remembered a forgotten appointment with her dentist. So her husband's younger brother, Max, a somewhat reckless youth of eighteen, was deputed to take her place. Virginia, knowing that Max frequently escorted his young sister-in-law about town, felt no misgivings when he explained that he was Mrs. Blaisdell's substitute. First of all, said Virginia, seating herself beside Max, we'll have to go all over town to borrow vases and jardinieres. This is the loveliest and most delightfully sociable place in the world, I believe. When anybody entertains, everybody else comes to the rescue with everything she owns. I've noticed it, said Max. They don't do it where I come from. Why, continued Virginia enthusiastically, I shouldn't be afraid to give a party if I hadn't anything in the world but a barn and two teaspoons. Your friends just thrust their belongings upon you. Stop first at Mrs. Margrave's, please. I'm to have all the asters in her garden, and you're to help pick them. I don't see, said Max, stopping neatly at the curb, how this town could get along without you. It couldn't, said Virginia, more than half believing it. But how nicely you stopped then, just in the right spot. Yes, said Max, with the vanity of eighteen. I always stop in just the right spot. I can beat my brother all hollow running this automobile. Jack always makes her plod along, just as our old gray nag used to do, afraid of wearing out the tires, I guess. You should see him potter around the corners. When I turn one, I do it in style. Virginia did not doubt it. Max had a way of doing things with a flourish, and Virginia was certain that his corners were no exception. The two young people, always chatting gaily, visited various other gardens for autumn flowers, and stopped at several houses for dishes to put them in. The runabout was a small affair, with seating capacity for four persons. The front seat was wide and comfortable. Max, perched on the extreme edge, occupied the middle of it. Behind him, at both sides and at his feet, were pink and white asters, cut with long stems and standing upright in baskets and large jardinieres. "'You look,' said Virginia, teasingly, "'just like a cherub on a valentine. From the sidewalk your head is all that shows. I shan't be half so picturesque and beautiful, surrounded by vases and pickle jars. 
I'm afraid I look more like a perambulating crockery store. Max responded with a good-natured grin, and Virginia climbed in. The back seat was merely a narrow shelf, with a slender rail as a footrest, but by hooking one elbow over the back of the seat, Virginia felt tolerably secure. Beside her was a basket filled with jars. Her left arm was clasped tightly about Mrs. Price's handsomest cut-glass face. "'I love this vase,' confided Virginia. "'It's the only one in town that is tall enough, so it goes to all the parties. I should hate to have anything happen to it. It cost a lot.' "'It's a beauty,' said Max. "'Hold tight now. "'This street's slightly downhill all the way, "'and there's a sharp turn at Front Street. "'Quite a trick to make it, but I can do it up brown. "'Now we'll just sail. "'Isn't this great?' "'Virginia was not quite sure. "'Loose strands of hair streamed at each side of her face, "'and her hat, forced forward by the rush of their progress against the wind, "'rested on the bridge of her nose.' She had no thought of danger, but she could not help wondering how Max, going at such speed, was to make the next turn at Cedar Street. As a matter of fact, he did not make it. Instead, the lever, clogged with pink and white asters, bulked at the critical moment, and the machine swept on down the avenue. It was literally down, for the avenue dropped for two long blocks abruptly down a steep hill. Nor was this the worst. Directly in the road at the bottom of the declivity stood a bronze statue of Gardenville's patron saint. Virginia's one horrified glance over Max's shoulder showed her that the machine was headed directly for the statue. As they rushed downward over the loose stones, for the road was very sadly out of repair, jardiniers, vases, and flowers bounced out, strewing the road behind them with bits of broken crockery and scattered blossoms. Virginia, clutching Mrs. Price's cut-glass face to her bosom, closed her eyes and awaited the crash, but it did not come. Instead, the machine, giving forth a sharp metallic screech, swerved suddenly, barely grazed the corner of the stone pedestal, crashed through a light picket fence at the south side of the street, bounced up like a rubber ball and landed upside down, with wheels still spinning ten feet below the street level in the lower end of Mr. Gates's hillside garden. Fortunately, this happened to be the spot used by Mr. Gates's gardener for the storing of all hedge clippings, dead leaves, and other refuse from the garden. Max and Virginia landed on the sloping sides of the broad heap and rolled with diminished speed to the bottom. Presently, Max sat up, and not quite believing his senses, found himself not only alive but able to stand and walk. Virginia, apparently, had not fared so well. Her eyes were closed and from a multitude of scratches on her face and hands trickled tiny rivulets of blood. But the cut-glass vase, oddly enough, was still intact. Mr. Gates's man, who had seen the machine take its flying leap over the garden wall, arrived puffing like a second automobile, just as trembling Max, horrified at Virginia's plight, was wondering where to turn for aid. "'Here,' said the gardener, taking in the situation at a glance, you go ahead and open the gate, and I'll carry the girl across to the hospital. She's no heavier, I guess, than two sacks of potatoes. And here, take this here bit of crockery. Twenty minutes later, Virginia opened her eyes to find herself in one of the narrow beds of the charity hospital, with a doctor and a white-capped nurse smiling reassuringly at her, and the cut-glass vase blinking at her from the dresser. No broken bones, said the doctor. One sprained wrist, one bumped head, and about three dozen scratches of assorted size. 
none deep enough to leave scars. You landed on your head, and one hand in a heap of brambles. Feel any pain in any other part of your body? No, said Virginia, moving her limbs cautiously, and finally sitting up in bed. No, my face smarts, and my head feels queer when I wiggle it, but that seems to be all. Oh, what about Max? Not even stunned. Now take this medicine Miss Knapp has ready for you, and rest quietly until your mother comes. You're sound as a dollar, and so is that reckless boy. If your nerves play no tricks, you'll be all right in a day or two. The girls' nerves proved the best of their kind, for they caused no trouble. Mrs. Donaldson, who dreaded scars, insisted, however, that Virginia should stay where she was until the deepest scratch, carefully tended by Miss Knapp, should be completely healed. After the first day, Virginia was allowed to have visitors, with an entirely unlooked-for result. First, all the nurses, in their becoming caps, stole in to see her, for they all knew the helpful young girl by hearsay. Strangely enough, one after another, without in the least suspecting that she was saying the wrong thing, always added, after mentioning Virginia's general helpfulness and commenting on the narrowness of her escape, "'How much your mother would have missed you!' At first this made no impression on Virginia. It seemed merely a polite phrase. But when the doctor, all the nurses, and finally the visitors that flocked from town later in the week to see her, when even the sweet sixteen, who knew her best, had said the same thing, it set the girl to thinking. Mrs. Donaldson was not a complaining woman. Not one of these outside persons realized that the girl, so helpful to everyone else, was of no earthly use to the members of her own family circle. The constantly reiterated phrase grew absolutely unbearable before the week was over. "'Oh, why, why?' groaned Virginia, walking restlessly about her little room. "'Will everybody persist in thinking me so fearfully useful at home? Anybody'd think, to hear people talk, that I stayed up nights to make myself useful to the Donaldsons. Why, if I had been killed, those well-meaning people would all have condoled with poor mother.' and reminded her forty times a week that I've never found time to do a single thing she's ever asked me to do. "'Oh, Miss Donaldson,' said a voice at the open door, "'I just ran in to bring you some carnations, and to say how glad I am that you escaped so well. We couldn't have spared you. How much your mother—' "'I'm glad to see you,' interrupted Virginia, a guilty crimson flooding her cheeks. "'What lovely flowers! I'll put them into my best vase.' Yes, it's mine now, for Mrs. Price said that after I had saved it at the risk of my life, she thought it ought to belong to me. I'm so glad you're so well, said the visitor, not to be switched from her embarrassing subject. Your poor mother would have missed you so terribly if— I just love carnations, said Virginia, driven to desperation in her attempt to avoid that accusing sentence. Don't you? Yes, dearly. "'As I was saying, your mother—' "'Here she is now,' cried Virginia. "'I'm to go home with her today. "'No, not in the automobile, although it's mended as well as I am, but on foot.' Half an hour later, Virginia paused at the top of the hill to look back, with a shudder, at the statue of the town's patron saint. "'Mother,' said she, "'I hope you've lots of things for me to do, "'for I've decided to live at home after this for at least half of each day.' 
That, said Mrs. Donaldson, who was a wise woman, and who had likewise been receiving congratulations, will be lovely. End of chapter 12